You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. Today's episode shares an interview Tom had with Mario Basora, superintendent of Yellow Spring School in Ohio. Mario grew up a C student in California with little interest in school, all the way through high school graduation. But then he crossed paths with educators during his college years who ignited in him a passion for education he didn't know he even had. So let's listen in as Mario explains his journey from being an average student on the West Coast to a successful superintendent in Ohio. Mario Basura, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, great to be here. I'm honored to be on the show. Hey, Mario, I really enjoyed meeting you in Cincinnati a couple weeks ago at the KnowledgeWorks uh, Summit and would just would love to know uh, a little more about your background and, and how a kid that went to Cal Fullerton, how you ended up uh, being a superintendent in, in Cincinnati. So where'd you grow up? <laughs> I'm originally from New York, actually. I was uh, born in Bronx to a single mother. Uh, and I have a sister through my mother as well. And um, and we moved to California when I was very young, actually less than a year old. And uh, I grew up in Santa Ana, California, if you know where that is, uh, in the middle of Orange County. It's the part of Orange County that is not Newport. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you clarified that. Yes, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I want everybody right. to know this is a, a dense, low-income rectangle uh, on the north side of, of Orange that's Great right. school district today, but um, tough neighborhood. Yeah, so I grew up in Santa Ana and uh, to a uh, you know really a, a poor neighborhood and um, to a single mother. And, and there were times where we were in and out of Section Eight housing growing up a little bit. That's sort of where I started and, and uh, went to school and never really had a father in my life either. So um, luckily, I had friends and, and and their fathers who really took me in and, and, and made a, a difference. I think helped uh, my mother and helped me. Uh, become the person I think I am today as a result. So I, I, I grew up there and went to public schools my whole life. Um, and I was a, a C student. I'll be the first one to say that <laughs> in high school and, and uh, middle and elementary. I, I, my grades were never at the top of the class. And I think one of the things that, that I, when I reflect back on my upbringing in high school that, that really rings true for me now is uh, I, I just was uh, I wasn't, wasn't interested in school. I was, I was bored. I, I felt like I was going through the motions, you know, having to jump through hoops. And, and it was more about uh, hoop jumping than it was about really learning something and, and, and learning to, to have an impact on the world beyond myself and beyond just a, a paper or a worksheet that needed to be turned in. And, and so uh, while I didn't quite recognize it as, as much as I do now, um, at the time, I think that it had a, a significant impact on, on my education and and how I was brought up. I, I went to college uh, after high school at uh, Point Loma Nazarene College for, for a year down in San Diego. And actually, I didn't, I, I didn't do well there. I ended up uh, coming back to Orange County uh, after that first year and um, enrolled in a community college. And during that second year of college, I, um, I had this real wake-up call and epiphany, you know, where I sort of uh, woke up one day and I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, Mario, nobody's going to going to change your life, but you, you have got to be the one that makes a difference in your world. And I had a, a couple professors um, at that point that really kind of uh, turned me on to school in a way that I hadn't been turned on before. Uh, one was a, a teacher of logic and critical thinking. <laughs> so it's a philosophy class. And uh, he was just different than anybody I'd ever experienced before. And he was, uh, he was real. And I, I felt this, uh, you know, very strong connection. And 
got involved in the speech and debate at the college and university. And uh, those two experiences at uh, Orange Coast Community College completely turned my life around. And I went from, from getting C's and, and, uh, and, and poorer grades to instantaneously getting A's in college. And then kind of the rest uh, is history, as I say. I kind of took off from there. And uh, But it's an amazing uh, and not uncommon example of of a couple things. One, you made the decision about getting serious about school, and and two, it was a relationship with a, a prof that took the work seriously, that was open to relationship, and asked you to to think. And then it was really powerful learning experiences, right? And it sounds like all three of those happened together that during that second year of college. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think that's what happened. And actually, I think being engaged and involved in the uh, local speech and debate team had a huge impact on me because, you know, I, I hadn't grown up with a ton of confidence in my skills and ability to read and write and uh, do math. And doing that and getting involved in that and having some relative success there actually made school fairly easy for me <laughs> at that point, you know, which is totally the opposite of what I had experienced before that. Uh, in my life. And it was this extra sort of thing that I was involved in extracurricularly that um, gave me the confidence and enabled me to make the connection between my schoolwork and my life. Because in speech and debate, it was, it was a lot of things I was very interested in. It was, it was, uh, it was politics. It was arguing. It was <laughs> all of these things I, was, uh, I, I loved to do. And um, I was able to take that and translate it to my studies and the rest of my classes. And how did you get to Northern Kentucky? Well, <laughs> a few years later, I was a student at Cal State Fullerton, and I decided I wanted – I had a my, my debate coach actually told me, you know, you ought to think about becoming an educator and a teacher. And I said, okay, well, let me, let me look into um, this camp. And I decided to be a camp counselor in the Pocono Mountains. And uh, I went to camp there, and I, I enjoyed it. I, I had 24 uh, kids and sixth graders in one cabin. And I loved it. And I thought, maybe this means I should be a teacher, <laughs> a middle school teacher. So uh, I, I happened to, at this camp, I happened to meet a, a woman who convinced me to move to Ohio. Uh, not my wife, but it all works out in the end. <laughs> and so um, I moved to Ohio and uh, attended Northern Kentucky. And so I went back and forth, actually, between Northern Kentucky University and Cal State Fullerton. So I could make sure I had enough credits to get residency and graduate from Cal State Fullerton uh, with a degree in poli-sci. And then in Northern Kentucky, I, I finished up my, my bachelor's to get uh, in social studies. So there's a, there's a dual bachelor's that I had there. So that's how I ended up here in Ohio and Cincinnati and, and Northern Kentucky is, uh, you know, obviously right very close to the border of Kentucky and, and Cincinnati. And then I started teaching in Cincinnati at uh, Princeton High School, Princeton Middle School in, in the Cincinnati area. Mara, you're really passionate about student engagement and, uh, and project-based learning. What were the influences uh, on that? How, how do you really, how did you come to understand that uh, as a critical pedagogy? Right. So you said you took the words right, right there. Uh, p- critical pedagogy. So I, for me, um, the big reason I, I decided I wanted to be a teacher, and I think this is the case for teachers across the country, is that uh, ultimately I felt like um, I had a spark that happened with me in college and um, that made a difference in my life. And I felt like I really wanted to be able to do the same for other kids, and, and I wanted to really truly make a difference. But I, I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted teaching to be uh, an opportunity to really, really help kids learn and do great things with their lives, uh, not just after they were in school, but but while they were in school. 
And so uh, going to Miami University for my master's uh, degree in, in uh, educational leadership uh, really opened my eyes to the world of critical pedagogy, reading some of the works of Michael Apple, Peter McLaren, Paulo Freire, you know, these, these really, uh, really uh, incredible minds on, on critical pedagogy uh, really opened my world and, and uh, helped me make the connections between some of the things I had believed about education before and then the, the theory behind it. And um, really was uh, an incredible wake-up call. And, and at Miami, we did a lot of uh, problem-based learning work there uh, through the graduate program. And I thought that was a really powerful experience. When I started as a, as a principal, I had the opportunity to go visit a new tech school in um, Indiana. And as I walked into this school and I uh, saw what was going on there, it was like an immediate uh, connection. I, I saw exactly what I had been trying to do uh, in the schools I had been in and happening actually right in front of me and, and, and with kids. And I knew that the first thing that came to my mind was it, it, this is the kind of school that I want my own children to go to. And if this is the kind of school that I want my kids to go to, my own children, um, and at that time I had a daughter, I think, who was uh, very young, and, and I think my son was just big, just, my wife actually was pregnant with my son at that point. Um, if this is the, the school I want my kids to go to, it should be the school, I should do whatever I can to make this the kind of school that all kids could go to. Um, I, I've, I've long felt that uh, project-based learning is uh, the pedagogy and the, the teaching approach used in gifted programs across the country. It's the pedagogy being used in um, private schools across the country. And I feel like if it's, if it's good enough for, for private school kids and, and gifted students, it ought to be good enough for all students. I want to add a quick note here that New Tech Network is a national network of over 200 project-based schools, many of them high schools. Uh, Indiana happens to be the state with the largest density. Um, these are schools that feature integrated project-based learning. Uh, almost every class is a team taught uh, with, with interesting mashups of subjects. So just to add a little color to what you saw there. Great. You were inspired by that kind of uh, deeper learning. I was, and, and um, I, deeply inspired by it. And so I didn't get a chance to really see that happen in the school I was in at the time because uh, I don't think they were ready for that. And I think there were other things that, that, that we were working on in that school that were important for us. Uh, it, was a, it was a great school, Wyoming Middle School in Cincinnati, a wonderful place uh, for students to learn. And, and I learned a lot being uh, the principal in that school building. But then when I got the opportunity to come to Yellow Springs, uh, I was able to... Uh, be part of coming in at a time where it was really kind of a different time here. We had, uh, was uh, approximately eight, seven, eight years ago. And uh, we had a whole brand new administrative team coming in at the same time. So we had a new high school principal, a new elementary principal, a new treasurer, and a new superintendent all being hired at the exact same time uh, in one school district. And in such a small school district, I mean, that's all we have. We have two principals and um, the treasurer and the superintendent as well as a special education supervisor, you know, and, and other positions. But in terms of the building administration and the district admi leadership administration, uh, we were all new coming in at the same time. And so it, it sort of presented us an interesting opportunity to really uh, think differently. And, and we were able to have uh, to come in on a strategic planning year. And so we started the strategic planning process. And what came out from this community at Yellow Springs very clearly in the strategic planning process, not just from the members of the community, but our, our 
teachers, our students, and our administrators uh, was a clear uh, interest and bend towards uh, project-based learning uh, experiences with experiential learning, uh, kids learning by doing, getting out in nature, um, making the walls of the school permeable within the community, and uh, you know opportunities like that that I knew uh, were, were parts of, of, of project-based learning. Now the challenge was when that came out of the strategic plan, we got a strategic plan right now with six priorities, uh, 36 goals, and 84 outcomes. <laughs> and so it is a huge uh, strategic plan. And we knew that in order to really uh, find achievement in strategic plan, it's called the class of 2020 strategic plan. So technically we're still in that plan uh, right now. In order to do that, we needed to really find, uh, as they say, the big rocks, you know, and identify the big rocks in the planet. And the one big rock that came out for me was, was the plan talking about uh, creating a school of innovation with a new innovative learning teaching model. And in that was all the work around project and, and inquiry-based learning. And so we took that and we said, let's work on this big rock. And I think if we really tackle this, it will have resounding effects throughout the plan. And, and we'll be able to tackle a lot of things by just working on this one main part of our plan. We've heard from other education leaders about how important it is to include the community in strategic planning conversations. In season two, we chatted with Mesa County Valley School District 51 Superintendent Steve Schultz and Rebecca Middles, their Executive Director of Performance-Based Systems, about the important role their community played in the district's six-year shift to competency-based education. So Tom asked Mario to unpack who was driving the direction of their new strategic plan, whether it was mainly his administration and staff or the community who helped it become a priority. Because we had the, the strategic planning process was a year and a half long and involved the entire community in this, including the input of teachers and students, we felt like we had a strong consensus about the direction uh, we needed to go in. Despite that, I've been part of many uh, unsuccessful school change efforts, Tom, <laughs> in my career as, as a uh, administrator and principal. And I've tried to learn lessons each time <laughs> we've tried things and they haven't quite worked as well as we'd like them to have worked. And uh, one of the things that I think has been critical for us that I learned as a result of that is that bringing teachers or the people who will be doing the work on a day-to-day -day basis in as part of the planning process from inception uh, is critically important to success. And so from the very beginning, we had meetings with teachers. We had um, faculty meetings very quickly with, with the entire faculty together. And we had a discussion about the direction that the strategic plans suggested we'd be going in and took a fist to five. And um, clearly, uh, publicly, the faculty voted with a fist to a five about their support for going forward with project-based learning or not. And we had folks look around and, and say, you know, and we, we identified that clearly consensus is being formed here to go forward. And that really helped, I think, uh, spearhead the work and, and, and get us going in the right direction. So it, it was really a, a process that started with the community and um, developed from inception, walking side by side with our teachers. So I often say project-based learning is easy to do. It's just hard to do well. <laughs> Uh, you know, you can engage kids, but it can turn into kind of low-level activities. So what what do you do in Yellow Springs to, uh, to make it not only high engagement, but, uh, but, but rigorous uh, that results in the sort of deep 
learning that you had uh, during your college experience? Well, I think uh, so we try to make sure that we're not talking about project oriented learning and we're really focused instead on project based. And so the notion is that we, we really want our kids to uh, learn by doing as opposed to uh, learning something in a very traditional sense and then, you know, building the mission at the end uh, to, to showcase. So so our kids really struggle through the inquiry process uh, intentionally to to develop their learning. Um, we developed uh, strong rubrics. Uh, Every teacher does. And, and actually what we've been doing recently um, as part of our growth is we've developed uh, students have been developing our rubrics for our projects at inception in terms of the work they want to do and how we're going to measure our growth and progress over time during the project. And, and when you have student written rubrics and student created rubrics, I think that really leads to success. We've, we've created a, a project planning document that's, that's pretty rigorous, uh, that really in, includes a significant amount of uh, effort to get to the rigor specifically around standards and ensuring that we're, we're covering standards, that we're, kids are learning the standards and that we're assessing them uh, throughout our projects and in the process. Um, we incorporate a ton of critique and revision through our work and our process. And so uh, the kids are doing on, on, in, on most projects anywhere from 7 to 20, I've heard even, uh, revisions on, of their work. And so uh, we're getting, giving and receiving feedback from each other uh, in addition to that, our teachers are, are now doing, um, they've been, they present their projects for tuning um, on a regular basis, twice a year. Every teacher has to present their projects publicly to their peers for tuning to get feedback about all the pieces that, that are needed to ensure that the uh, student learning is rigorous and that, um, that you know, all the, the important components we think uh, that are needed in, in PBL are included. And then they take that feedback and we intentionally give one cool feedback. So really kind of like the critical friends protocol that I'm sure you're aware of. Mario, it sounds like, uh, the buck gold standard, uh, approach. You had some buck training in there as well to help, right? Yeah. So we've had uh, lots of buck training. Um, we, we actually have our training we consider it more of a, a, a hodgepodge training that we've had. Uh, we started out with getting some training from high tech high, um, we've also done some work uh, where we visited uh, schools, better expeditionary learning schools. We, we checked out an elementary school, the Genesee Community Charter School in Rochester, New York, that we thought was amazing. Um, we, we checked out all the high-tech high schools in, in California. And actually, we've done lots of visits there. Um, but we've also done a lot of work with Buck through training for coaches. We have uh, you know, coaches at, at different grade levels who, who are working with teachers on a regular basis to continue to improve our craft as well. And Buck's been been tremendously helpful with that. And a lot of our resources come from Buck as well. Let's dive in and take a quick look at a project at, at each level. Uh, at the elementary level, you, your kids did a, a cool uh, handicap access project. Tell us about that. So this is really a, a project that's near and dear to my heart. One of the, the uh, pieces of criticism or feedback that we get from our community and educators that come and visit our schools uh, is, you know, they all want to know how we how we work with special needs kids. And, and this is a project that was spearheaded by, by uh, our special needs kids. There are two students that we have that are, uh, that were in elementary school that uh, were in wheelchairs and are, are wheelchair bound. And those two students uh, had a passion for, um, you know, wheelchair accessibility. And so their teacher working with them, worked with them on creating a project whereby they went and walked around town and, and checked out all of the businesses in the downtown Yellow Springs area to see 
which ones had wheelchair accessibility and which ones did not. And we, so we looked not only at the businesses, but also at the sidewalks and the accessibility of the sidewalks and, and um, kind of kids created a map then of downtown and marked which businesses did have uh, handicap access and which did not and which sidewalks were problematic and not. And then these students wrote a letter to the village council and asked to come talk to them and speak with them about the, the challenges that they saw. And so they took their letter to village council and the village council said, we'd actually love you to come to a meeting and speak to us. So uh, the students then uh, took their, their map and, uh, and went to the meeting and advocated, uh, pointed out all the, the challenging areas within the community and advocated for the village to do something about these, uh, the, the handicap accessibility, accessibility problems that we're, we see in Yale Springs. And so uh, I love this project because it is uh, the definition of authenticity. And so in, in the end, what ended up happening is uh, there's a sidewalk directly across the street from the elementary that was uh, a, where you, it was a crosswalk. And on one side of the crosswalk, you could enter the crosswalk uh, from a wheelchair, in a wheelchair without any problems. But on the other side of the sidewalk, you could not. It was, it was a curb. And so it was this weird planning problem that, that existed. And, and so uh, immediately, within a month of the, the meeting with the, the village, the village decided to repair that sidewalk and change it so that it became wheelchair accessible to kids. And then they went on to proceed to do that to several other places and other sidewalks uh, within the town. And so we love sharing this project because it's something tangible. The kids learned the curriculum and they were able to make a difference at the same time. Yeah. Talk about uh, developing a sense of agency, right? That you can make a difference in your community. Today, not 15 years from now. Exactly. Isn't that powerful? And uh, it was yeah. just amazing for me to see that project. And, and, and the, the other interesting thing I'd say to Tom is that the impact is not just on the kids uh, or in the community. It's also uh, on our teachers. You know, so many times, I think, in the profession, we go into the profession, uh, teachers, with uh, one idea of what they want teaching to be like. And it's this great, wonderful concept. And then they, they go into school where it's quite the opposite, where it's, uh, they don't experience any of the things they thought they were going to experience in schools. But one of the things I found with PBL is our teachers are, are tapping into their creativity <laughs> more than ever. Uh, and there's, they're, they are feeling fulfilled in the work that their kids are doing. And I, and I think that's a powerful piece. And, and this teacher is extremely proud of this work, uh, Miss uh, Linda Culture. So your seventh graders are doing a project that I love. It's called Into the Wild, Learning on the Land. And it's what I would call a place-based uh, project. Tell, tell us about that one. So Into the Wild, this is the, this is the second year they're doing this project. Um, oftentimes our teachers are not doing projects more than one year. Uh, but, but this one they felt like they wanted to do again. I'll just talk about what it was last year and, and a little bit about what's changing for this year. The beauty of this project is oftentimes when we think about uh, academics, um, what are the subjects that often get pushed to the back burner? So physical education, uh, music, you know, a lot of the arts and in the non-core academic subjects often get, get pushed to the background. But this is a academic project that is uh, spearheaded by our uh, physical education and health teacher in middle school, uh, working in collaboration with our science teacher in middle school. And so this team of teachers uh, are working across the curriculum uh, on a project that uh, where kids essentially are taking a 65-mile bike ride from Yellow Springs down the pike, bike path nearby all the way to Cincinnati. <clears throat> and what they, what they did was in order to get ready for this 65-mile ride, uh, they've had three or four training rides in preparation where the kids and 
community members. So I think uh, they had the ride the other day, there was a training ride. We have, um, you know, 65 kids in the seventh grade class right now. We had uh, 50 people on this training ride that was a, a six mile training ride up north towards Springfield. But what's cool about that is of the 45, maybe 15 of them were community members who went on the ride with our kids because they're excited about this work and what the kids in the, in, in the schools are doing. Mario, our, our listeners are thinking, this is really crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy ambitious. It is. It is cool because here's, here's the, the amazing thing about this, the, the project and the way it ended up. So it's a 65-mile ride. The kids stopped overnight uh, for two nights. And so uh, they stopped at a uh, Morgan's uh, canoe livery where they camped out. And then the second day, they went on a six-mile canoe ride. And then the third day, they went the rest of the way down to uh, Cincinnati. But believe it or not, of the 64 kids who uh, were in that class, we only had three kids that did not go on the trip or did not make the trip the whole way. And so it, it's, wow. it was uh, amazing that the kids were able to do this uh, with lots of training and, and work over time. Now, th- I think that the, the most interesting about this thing about this project is that along the way, so just if you don't mind me sharing some of the interdisciplinary connections that are created through this project, because I think that's the most powerful uh, piece of this for the kids. So in addition to the physical education um, elements that, that are obvious from, from the bike riding, um, the students in social studies uh, were studying the Underground Railroad along with uh, English language arts class. And so they'd stop at different places on the, the trail or on the bike trail. And the kids would present uh, some of the historical connections uh, that are related to the direct the location that they are at on the trail. And so you'd go five or six spots and the kids would stop and then present and then move on to the next spot. Um, in addition to that, uh, they read a book by Shelley Pearsall called Trouble Don't Last, uh, which is a historical fiction about the Underground Railroad and, and takes place in, in, in a similar area to Yellow Springs. And, and um, the kids read the book. Shelley Pearsall, the author, came in to talk to the kids. And then they, some of the kids, after the project was over, did historical narratives themselves based on blending their experience uh, and experiences that happened on the trip with the Underground Railroad experience. And so that was kind of an interesting element the kids did. In addition, in science class, the kids uh, did water quality studies of, with, with the Little Miami River. And so the kids went and they did sampling throughout the river all the way down at, at different locations, including where an old uh, bullet factory was uh, on, on, the, on the river and kind of tested the water to see what it was like. They did a macro invertebrate study as well. And so uh, it's super amazing to hear the kids talk about this and their knowledge is uh, beyond mine for sure. And uh, ultimately uh, created a water quality report of the Little Miami River, which they submitted to the Ohio EPA. And so those are the kinds of things our kids are doing and, and that they did with this project. Um, it got a lot of uh, recognition from the community and, and the, the Dayton paper and also um, a few conservation groups within the area. And uh, consequently, this year, uh, the I think it's the Ohio Trails Association asked the kids to put signs up of different historical markers uh, throughout the trail. So part of the kids' goal this year then in their project for the second year is to now sort of put landmarkers uh, throughout the trail while they're on their trip uh, that become permanent landmarkers that are there for anybody who who makes the trip going forward. Your high school kids are also doing really interesting stuff. And I I, I know they've done uh, some work um, on some community projects around particular events in the community, um, like your elementary kids, 
but the one I'd love to have you touch on is uh, a project called Is It Too Late to Save the Planet? So that, Where did that come from and what's it about? So I, I, our, our teachers, uh, I believe it was a 10th grade team, um, was really fascinated. We were interested in this idea of, you know, um, saving the planet. And one of the things they wanted to do, and, and this is the challenge often for high schools doing this kind of work, is finding ways to create a project that has enough broad appeal interdisciplinarily so that you can include uh, all of the major subjects the kids are taking. And, and so this was one of those projects where they really tried to do that. Kids worked in, in teams essentially on, on creating a product ultimately. So they did a, a lot of research on um, uh, the topics of in, environmental justice, uh, you know, the, the needs environmentally uh, and the challenges we're facing in our country, uh, you know, because of the, the destruction of our environment around global warming, etc. And um, the kids ultimately had to form project groups around their interests and their passions uh, and then try to really save the planet, if you will. And so we had... Uh, Lots of groups that did many interesting things, including a, a student who uh, really tried to do something super ambitious and, and create their own windmill uh, that ultimately didn't quite make it to the final stage. But but that's what happens sometimes with projects. You know, uh, you, you really do something ambitious and occasionally it doesn't. But probably one of the more most ambitious things that happened out of that project was a group that decided that they were going to build a beehive or, or create a beehive or bring a beehive to Yellow Springs and uh, have a col- colony established and grown that maybe they could replicate and, and increase the pollinators um, in the area. And so the cool thing about this particular piece is the kids went on a Sunday and they drove all the way up to Cleveland <laughs> to get this beehive. They put it in the back of their truck <laughs> and drove it all the way down from Cleveland uh, to Yellow Springs, to which is actually a three-hour drive. Not everybody, not everybody knows that's on the opposite side of the state. <laughs> it's a three-hour drive. <laughs> And so they drove it all the way down from Cleveland to Yellow Springs. And then the kids set the hive up on Sunday. Uh, they got it fenced in. And um, when, when I talked to the kids about the project, and, and they like to talk about how, you know, we had this crazy, ambitious idea. We didn't think the school would ever say it was okay. <laughs> but we, we did it. And when they said we, we could do it, and it became actually real, the kids were really excited about it and uh, put it in. So the beehive uh, sat in... in in the very back of our school. So we have a, a 37 acre uh, school site out there, but it was it was out there on the edge of the site, uh, right next to our uh, Frisbee golf course that kids built. Um, and, uh, and and it's really cool. And so it's, and then the kids tended it and, and continued to do what they could to support the bees and, That's great. and their needs. Mario, let's wrap up with some advice for leaders who are thinking about engaging kids they're thinking about project-based learning they're interested in um as as uh, you say in yellow springs and creating fearless thinkers yeah uh, where where would you encourage people to start um you know i, I think um so what i would say is I, I think the first thing would be to get a team of of uh teacher leaders together and, and administrative leaders together uh and from the very beginning uh start to have discussions about this and then Start to be curious about it. Uh, go out and look at schools that are doing it, and uh, get just it. like you guys did. You you looked at uh, all the great schools that uh, that that we know about. So it sounds like school visits were important. They were super important, and I think that was huge for us. Um, and then try to form a plan about uh, try to come to some agreement and, and get a team together that includes folks from uh, a broad area of subjects and grade levels, 
And, and you know, if you're in a, a state or in a school that, that has a, a teacher's union, ensure that you have your teacher's union president, I think, as part of the, the discussion, because I think that that's critically important as well going forward. And, and so having teachers as part of the planning process and design process from inception, I think, is, is critical. Um, a couple other things that I think are important, if you don't mind uh, me sharing. Uh, I think uh, a laser focus on, on one thing. So for us, uh, in schools often across the country, and, and in my experience certainly in Ohio, is uh, we, at school, we in schools tend to have innovation overload, where we continue to uh, change, have six, seven, eight goals every single year, and are trying a new program every year. And then the very next year, we get rid of six of those programs and add six more on. And uh, what happens when you do that is you don't get good at anything. And so we have intentionally uh, chosen to um, really be disciplined and focused on one thing and this, this work uh, for, for now five years. And I think it's starting to really um, bring dividends in for us because our, our teachers have been able to get good at it and learn and make mistakes. And, and that's been a huge, a huge difference for us in our work. Um, you know, also, I, I think I'd suggest that, you know, we... We, uh, you know, we, we tend to celebrate the small victories. You know, we, uh, we, um, we, we try to focus our energy on resources and resources on supporting those that are, are really ready and, and willing to change practice. So a lot of that work is when we have um, anytime you're going through a change effort, uh, it's, it's really important that when teachers are ready um, to, to give them the support and give them the resources they need to succeed. Um, and then, and, then I, and then I think there's a larger context here, which, which is, is really important. I think there's a tension happening right now that affected us and still affects us every single day between uh, what I would call the no child left behind culture of testing and accountability and what I think is a new culture of uh, personalization, risk taking and innovation. And I think those two cultures are, are in conflict. And, and I think for us, um, we kind of sum it up in, in a couple words. I mean, I think... Um, we felt like we had to move from a culture of the culture of Alan Blankenstein's book of failure is not an option. And, and, and it's a culture that I, I very much uh, agreed with. And I, I feel strongly that kids need to learn how to read at all costs. We need to have interventions in place to help kids be successful. But I think if we really want to redesign schools and we want teachers to take risks uh, and really change uh, qualitatively what we offer students, we need to move from a culture of failing is not failure is not an option to one of failing forward. Because teachers have to be allowed to take risks um, if they're ever going to be innovative and change our culture. Uh, as long as we have a culture where risk-taking and failure is uh, made public in a, in a, in a, in a negative and, and consequential way, then I, I think we will continue to stay in our ruts and, have, uh, and continue to, to stay in the 20th century model of teaching and learning. And in order to get it to move forward, uh, it's going to require a cultural shift towards innovation and risk-taking. Mario Besora, Superintendent Yellow Springs Schools in uh, Ohio. We really appreciate the work that you do, and thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you having me. Thanks to Mario Besora for speaking with us today. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat signing off.